If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, I spoke to the historian and author Helen Fry. Helen's latest book is The Walls Have Ears, which tells a remarkable story of Second World War espionage, in which German prisoners of war were tricked into giving away vital secrets. I met Helen in London to find out more. So your new book delves into one of the most remarkable um, intelligence operations of the Second World War. Could you start off by introducing us to that operation and the story that you go on to tell? We've all heard of... MI5 and MI6. But in the Second World War, there was also MI9. And MI9 was responsible for gaining intelligence from captured German prisoners of war, or actually, incidentally, even intelligence from our guys that were captured and made it back, uh, escaped from camps in Germany. So um, the most important thing at the outbreak of war was to find a way to gain intelligence and information from German prisoners of war. Because MI9 believed that one of your most important sources of information are your prisoners. What kind of intelligence were the British hoping to acquire from these officers? The most important areas of intelligence, of course, are battle plans, strategy, night fighters, particularly for for our air crew to to combat, uh, anything to do with new technology. And we find right across the wartime, Germany was escalating its 
technology from all sectors, whether it was new technology on U-boats or whether it was the secret weapon program, as we know, the V1, V2, the atomic bomb program. So this kind of stuff is, is really important. And I think the especially interesting aspect of this book is the type of methods that the British employed, because they weren't just relying on interrogation, were they? They weren't, no. In fact, sometimes the interrogations are sort of phony. And I love this because you get this real life and colour emerging in this story. And the prisoners, we know from the transcripts that survive in the National Archives, that the prisoners thought we were stupid and incompetent because we didn't know how to interrogate. But of course, that was part of the whole deception. After interrogation, a prisoner would go back to his room, obviously with his cellmate, and he would boast to his cellmate what he hadn't told the interrogators. And what they didn't realise, of course, were that were hidden microphones in the light fittings and the fireplaces. How was this viewed at the time? Was it seen as controversial, kind of underhand, or were people just of the opinion that they needed to get intelligence in any way possible? It goes back to what I was saying earlier, that MI9 believed that your prisoners are your most important sources of intelligence. And what's at stake here is democracy and freedom. And, of course, we'd be working towards the liberation of Europe. Whoever wins the intelligence game will win the war. The Duke of Marlborough in 1715, that was his, his belief. And that carried through in the intelligence services. So the, the price was high. If we didn't win the intelligence war through this deception, the bugging operation, but also Bletchley Park and the secret work of places like RF Mednam in Buckinghamshire, then, you know, we'd have lost the war. So who were the prisoners that were being listened in on? And what kind of information did they have to divulge? Well, it is extraordinary that within three weeks of the outbreak of war, so we're at the end of September 1939, we already had 60 German prisoners of war. And they came primarily from the first two U-boats that were sunk, one of them off the coast of Ireland. And thereafter, within weeks, we had uh, German Air Force prisoners. Army prisoners primarily came after D-Day, but not exclusively. And then, of course, there's the magic, I call it magical, and very theatrical uh, stage set that emerges once Hitler's generals start to be captured in 1942. But in terms of the intelligence in this period, in the first two to three years of the war, when I was researching this, I was staggered, and I'm still staggered by the sheer volume. Uh, I had to pull a file recently for... February 1940, there are a thousand conversations just for February 1940. And they only recorded the most important parts. So there's tons of stuff on U-boat tactics, on technology. There's also stuff on the German Air Force having new technology for precision bombing. Now, we would never have got that out in interrogation. So what happened to that material once it was collected? In the M room, there were these secret listeners. And once they'd recorded the most important bits, I mean, they didn't record prisoners talking about their wives or their kids schooling. It was the most, or dinner. Uh, it was the most important stuff, but just as they're beginning to talk about interesting stuff. And then after that, as soon as that conversation was finished, they had to transcribe it from the German uh, and then translate it into English. It was then typed up by another team. Uh, and thereafter, the commanding officer, Colonel Thomas Kendrick, was the one that will primarily would allocate 
the reports. And it would go to whoever needed to know. So it could be Churchill, it could be War Office, could be Bletchley, Bomber Command, but not every department received copies of all of the conversations. And don't forget, this was top secret. This was highly classified. You mentioned they're the secret listeners that were working on this classified material. And their stories are, I think, some of the most interesting material in the book Mm. because a lot of them didn't have straightforward routes to um, getting these jobs, did they? No, in fact, by the middle of the war, Kendrick needed, Kendrick, the commanding officer, needed German speakers, native German speakers, because the stuff that was coming out of the Emrum, the, the listening station, was so complex and technical that you had to be a native German speaker to understand it. And so he put out a request across the army for these. And there were several thousand German-Jewish male refugees serving in the Pioneer Corps. And basically that was a unit of the army that was digging for victory, constructing coastal defences. And they had fled Nazi Germany because 90% of them were Jewish, 10% were political opponents. And they were thoroughly frustrated. And I interviewed some of them and they were frustrated this was their war. They wanted to fight, they wanted to do something proper, and they were digging for victory. But their chance came for just over 100 of them when Kendrick put out that memo for German speakers in the army. And then they transferred to the intelligence corps to, by then, three of Kendrick's sites, secret sites, and made an incredible contribution that's never been recognised. So you mentioned there are three sites. Can you tell us about those? Yes. So from... The end of 1939, we started out in the Tower of London, which is a period I absolutely love. Seems like a very overdramatic location to pick. Well, I can't help thinking what the prisoners must have wondered. I mean, they would know if they're being brought into the Tower of London with its kind of history. Uh, So Tower of London, just for a short period, and then they moved out to, Kendrick moved out to Trent Park, which is at the end of the Piccadilly line at, at Cockfosters. He'd requisitioned the stately home of Sir Philip Sassoon. And that operated for the next couple of years. But this belief that we were going to capture prisoners and ultimately win the war, too many prisoners to deal with at Trent Park. So he then requisitioned two other stately homes, Latimer House, which is near Amersham in Buckinghamshire, and Wilton Park at Beaconsfield, also just a few miles from from Latimer House. And so they had this kind of three sites Latimer House and Wilton Park were reserved for lower-ranked prisoners um, and non, largely non-officer. Around 10,000 would be processed through those two sites, volumes of intelligence. And Trent Park would be reserved for Hitler's captured generals. You paint quite an eccentric picture of life at Trent Park. Can you tell us what it was like for the generals there? Yes, I mean, when I came to work on this story, I thought it would just be about the bugged conversations. But we have the intelligence reports of the antics, and I deliberately use that word antics, that the generals get up to. And uh, British intelligence has created a whole theatrical stage set into which the generals move. And, of course, we knew you can't interrogate them. They're not going to tell you anything. So it was decided to give them a stately home, a relative life of luxury, They believed that the king had given them Trent Park according to their status as military gentlemen. And it's playing to their egos and their psyche in a way. And they didn't even question it. And then, of course, when they arrive, they're treated with utmost respect. 
they're greeted by a, I say in a character, deliberately my choice of words, of a character called Lord Aberfeldy, who was in fact one of Kendrick's senior intelligence officers, Ian Munro. And Lord Aberfeldy was named after a whiskey distillery, which again is just so typical of British humour. If you're going to have a fake aristocrat, what shall we call him? Well, we'll name him after a whiskey company. And then he was going to be, and he was, their welfare officer. So he befriended the generals, they relaxed in the surroundings. And of course, what they didn't realise was that just before their first generals arrived, Kendrick had had a special team in again, and he'd further wired the house for sound. So not just the light fittings and the fireplaces, but the plant pots, the billiards table, the trees in the garden, the bedrooms. It's it's mad. (laughs) I wanted to just ask you a bit more about Lord Aberfeldy, because it seems like such a bizarre and kind of eccentric um, character to take on. Why do you think that it was so successful, the creation of this fake aristocrat? Somehow they had to befriend the generals and also draw them out in in conversations. So some of the conversations are about German literature and art and stuff. Don't forget the German generals were well-educated, very proud of their traditions. And so we kind of, we dovetailed into that. But also he had a very important role because he was in charge of whining and dining the generals. So he would accompany them to Simpsons on the Strand, which is something you've probably read in the book. Uh, you know, Trent Park is, is luxurious, but and it does seem outrageous, but let's make sure they're completely and totally looking in the wrong direction, so to speak. And we give them nice food and uh, take them to Harrods on shopping trips. But it has another important dimension, and that is to start cracking into the the psyche because those generals start saying to themselves because we're good over here we're listening to their conversations well Goering told us that London had been flattened and the British are about to surrender and of course what they're seeing are shelves and shelves of luxurious goods in Harrods and three-course meal in Simpsons so they're thinking oh hang on a minute so there are many layers to what's going on here why do you think that the generals fell for all of this? Do you think it was because it, tipped, it um, tapped into that aristocratic snobbery of theirs? It's their sense of self-importance as military gentlemen. And there is a tiny bit of film footage that survives, and some of it's in the Imperial War Museum. And you can just see they, the way they're conducting themselves. Yes, they're defeated, but they are still proud military gentlemen, they actually believed that Kendrick and his, they just thought it was a small team, were looking after them so that when the Germans won the war, they could thank Kendrick and kind of, Kendrick was looking after his own skin. Um, I was also really interested to read about some of the infighting between the generals at Trent Park. Can you tell us about that? Yes, because you don't know what you're going to turn when you turn the page of the files, And one of the conversations, it does say in brackets sometimes, with sarcasm or laughing. And one day I came across a conversation with the two generals on the staircase. So, you know, they must have bugged the staircase as well, this beautiful oak staircase. And one of them shouting at the others, we will continue this argument after dinner. (laughs) You could just feel uh, the atmosphere. (laughs) 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think there's very little uh, knowledge that at the heart of this operation uh, were, were the American contingent. Intelligence officers started to arrive at Kendrick sites, not only for training, but also to become an integral part as intelligence officers and interrogators. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I did think that when you when you have all the verbatim records in the book, how was it to uncover all these archives and essentially have um, be transported directly back into Trent Park? Well, I found it uh, incredibly inspiring. I mean, it's, I'm reading stuff which sticks in your mind. These are scenes which you can't make up, and I had to be careful not to laugh too loudly in the archives you know it's a very quiet place it's supposed to be working you kind of turn the page and it'll say something like the generals are looking forward to their Christmas gifts from the Fuhrer and I thought to myself are those real Christmas gifts or is Kendrick and his lot wrapping them up in the back <laughs> back office and saying to the generals, the generals believe they had gifts from the Fuhrer. And all this is the kind of stuff that's going on, the props, to help them feel totally at home. And don't forget, some of them were there for nearly three years. And so it's very difficult for those generals to be on their guard for three years. They just completely relax. And the other one that sticks out, I mean, there are tons of this kind of stuff in the files. The other throwaway comment is with when one of Kendrick's officers says to the to the generals on New Year's Day, very happy new year, gentlemen. (laughs) 
And General Fontamus says, it might be a happy new year for you, but it's not for us. <laughs> and to me, those are real conversations. They're real moments in the Second World War, which I believe are unique. How did the British officers listening in on all of this sift through it in terms of what was rumour, what was hearsay, what was just plain mistakes and what was actually valuable intelligence? So they always try to corroborate intelligence and that would come from other sites as well, particularly this very close relationship that I've uncovered between Bletchley Park from the very early days, from 1939, very uh, close relationship between Bletchley Park and the bugging operation. So one key example of this is the secret weapon programme. We first heard reference to the secret weapon from prisoners in October 1939 in the Tower of London. Now, we didn't really know what they were talking about. Is it just their hope that Hitler's got this secret weapon, super weapon, whatever it is, that's going to save us? So we, we didn't take it seriously, but we, we couldn't really verify it. And there was stuff by 1940, early 43, from agents behind enemy lines about this secret weapon programme. But really the penny dropped when two generals at Trent Park gave away the fact that you know, we'd still believe we can win the war because we've got the V1 and the V2. So it's, it, sometimes it takes time uh, and it is very tricky, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of analysis going on of the, of the intelligence. And some of the insights that were recorded were not only about military manoeuvres or new technology, they were as much about life in Nazi Germany and mm. also war crimes and the Holocaust. Yeah. What kind of material came to light? in terms of that? Of course, when you start on this, you just don't know what you're going to read. Because just to give a perspective, there are around 70, 75,000 transcripts of conversations and intelligence reports. So that's a hell of a lot of stuff to work through. And you never know what you're going to find. And for me, the most shocking stuff was the stuff the prisoners talked about concentration camps and the Holocaust, uh, not only their attitude towards it, but the graphic detail. It's not just, you know, we've got concentration camps and Jews are going to concentration camps, but they're talking about whole-scale massacre of Jews, Poles, Russians, step by step. So very early, and in particularly 1941-42, some of the prisoners, not just the generals later, but some of the other prisoners are talking about how the killing actually happened. You know, we, we, we drove them into the woods, we took them out, uh, they walked a few steps to the edge of a pit, and you get this horrendously graphic picture and how aware had um, the British establishment been of those things? It was known in the 1930s. Spies and diplomats within, uh, within well, Germany and other parts of Europe in the 30s were well aware of concentration camps and what was happening. And I've worked on reports, foreign office reports of, of this stuff. And of course, the question is, what could, could we do about it? And that, that's a different question. So there is a massive information. But of course, the final solution per se is not finalised until 1942. Um, so after the war, there was, a, there was a widespread culture of saying, we didn't know about the concentration camps, we weren't aware. How does this material gathered here challenge that or reaffirm that maybe? So for me, there's a couple of strands which are absolutely essential for today. The first, of course, is that at the very end of the war, 
this stuff being highly classified was assigned to the basement of the war office. So nobody saw this stuff until the late 1990s. Uh, it took five years for it all to be declassified. It was so much of it. But in that time, up until 1990, it was believed that the Wehrmacht, the German army, had a clean bill of health. You know, it was, they weren't involved in atrocities and all that kind of stuff. It was the SS. It was a death squads but in fact these bug conversations show us that the german army parts of it were complicit in war crimes and of course some of them yes yeah, said we were only obeying orders we you know didn't know it was as bad as this uh, and today we can reassess what was known number one by the allies and the fact that it was all sectors of uh, the Nazi regime, including parts of the German army, which parts of which were not necessarily Nazi. But the other point, the final point I would make, for me, I think this stuff is vital in the fight against Holocaust denial. This is independent, non-Jewish evidence alongside the Jewish testimonies. And I think we do need to start working this into popular mindset to fight anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. So none of this material was brought back um, post-1945 in the Nuremberg trials? No. That was a, a, a quite an intense debate that was had within MI9 at the end of the war because Kendrick always believed, and the listeners were told, that the records, they, they recorded the conversations onto acetate records, they would be kept as physical evidence alongside the transcripts, the typed transcripts, and they would be presented at Nuremberg. And Kendrick really believed that. But at the end of the war, we're facing a very different situation. We're entering the Cold War. We might be bugging somebody else, <laughs> say no more. Uh, and for that reason, it was decided this ultimately, and MI9 was very split, but ultimately the head of MI9 decided, no, this stuff has to be classified and you cannot use it as evidence at Nuremberg. The secret listeners were Jewish-German emigrants, and so the material that they had to listen to about the Holocaust and concentration camps must have struck them really hard. I only managed to interview three surviving secret listeners because they'd all passed away by the time I got to the material over a decade ago. And I asked them this, how, did, how was it to be listening to this stuff? And they said we had to be professional and keep above emotion. But, of course, it is very ironic and very difficult for them. And, of course, at the end of the war, Kendrick gave some of them leave to go and find their relatives, which with the awful truth that they'd perished in the Holocaust. And they kind of knew that during the war, that the chances of their relatives, parents, grandparents surviving. But yeah, incredibly difficult for them. How successful overall do you think the operation was? Where can we see that this material made a difference? We're still in the infancy of analysing. I mean, I've only scraped the surface. I've given an overview uh, in the book. But we now need our historians to home in on particular topics. And whether it's links with Bletchley Park, whether it's Battle of the Atlantic, there's tonnes of intelligence on Battle of the Atlantic. And you get a sense that we've won the Battle of the Atlantic because of some of the stuff coming out of here. So we need to do a trail from A to B to C. And it, I have shown in the book that without this unit, 
if you look at the huge volume of intelligence which comes out of this unit, you get a sense that it has impacted, well, it has impacted on all the major campaigns of the war. And therefore, we need our historians to start looking. And I make a case for any book that is written now on World War II, we should, our historians should be consulting these files to see if there's anything of relevance. I mean, there might not be, but... Everything is covered pretty much, and it is staggering, the topics that are covered. And I believe you kind of get a sense that this will deepen and change parts of our understanding of World War II. Why do you think it has been underutilised so far? I know it was obviously classified for a very long time. Yes, so if we put aside the fact that it was classified for about 65 years, since then, I think there is a move to, you know, historians are beginning to use this stuff. It's been underused because, well, to give you an example, I wrote this book because of World War II veteran Fritz Lustig, who passed away just over a year ago. He said to me, no one had ever told the story of our unit. And did we do anything that made a difference to the war? And he was one of the secret listeners. He was discussed. one of the secret listeners that had fled Berlin. Uh, and I promised him I would write the book. And when I started pulling the files, I mean, if it wasn't for my personal relationship with Fritz over a decade period, I would have sent those files back down to the basement of the National Archives because how do you handle just dense volumes of conversations? I mean, it's very tedious. Let's not get over that. There's a colour in the life of the generals. There's, some, there's lots of exciting stuff. But if you just pull some random files, they are just overwhelming volumes of information. And the way to handle it now is literally for historians to go through. And if you're researching, oh, I don't know, invasion threat, Hitler's plans to invade Britain, there's tons of stuff on, on that topic. You, know, you home in and you just start putting little markers on when the prisoners talk about that. So I think we need to break down those, that overarming, big, massive material. And I would have given up. Actually, if it wasn't for Fritz, I think I would have given up because it's just so overwhelming. Thank God for Fritz. <laughs> so can you tell us about the American involvement in this? I think there's very little uh, knowledge that at the heart of this operation uh, were, were the American contingent uh, from the end of 1941, so within literally two weeks of Pearl Harbour, it's beginning towards the end of uh, December 41. Intelligence officers from America started to arrive at Kendrick's sites, not only for training, but also to become an integral part as intelligence officers and interrogators. And from then on, right through to the end of the war, they were partners, literally. And it's one of the other examples, uh, Bletchley being the other, of that close Anglo-American intelligence community, which begins in the Second World War. That must be part of the legacy as well, and it would be good to learn more about the intelligence officers. Most of them went on to work for the CIA. And it's worth also acknowledging that a considerable amount of those who worked there were women. What yes. kind of roles did they take on? Oh, the women are fascinating. At least a third of the the workforce were women. Intelligence staff about about 1,000 across the three sites. That doesn't include Americans. That's Americans on top of that. Uh, and I interviewed a few years ago this wonderful lady, Evelyn Baron, who was 101. 
And she worked in the naval intelligence team because, of course, they had contingent from the Army, Navy and Air Force. You had to because the prisoners were from all of those services. So I said to her, I just assumed she'd have been typing reports. And I said to her, well, what kind of stuff did you do? Because some of the women were sorting the files for their importance. So they were classifying it and deciding who needed to see it the war office or wherever. And I got the shock of my life when she said, we were the interrogators. I thought, oh, my gosh. You know, and she said, then said to me, we were the only known female interrogators of World War II. And people often say to me, wow, you know, can you really believe veterans? Do they elaborate? Uh, yeah, I do believe this. I mean, it was very natural, very genuine. But a little bit later, I found her name in the Naval Intelligence files at the National Archives. And next to her name, what does it say? Interrogator. <laughs> it's wonderful. And then the other thing she said to me uh, was that the, it completely freaked out the prisoners. Because, of course, they get it psyche. They were not expecting a female interrogator. It really kind of, I mean, it just disarmed them. Do you think that was part of the reason why they use female interrogators? I don't know for sure, but that would be my guess. And, and for me, those nuggets of discovery of the wartime that still continues to come out over 70, 80 years later makes this a fascinating subject to be studying. I loved history at school and you got a sense then that everything we were told was everything there was to know about the Second World War. Uh, but of course, in the interim, all the tons of stuff has been declassified and continues to be declassified. So I'm sure we haven't heard the last of some of the most exciting operations of World War II. And it really is capturing the public's imagination as well as that of our historians. That was Helen Fry. Helen's book, The Walls Have Ears, is out now, published by Yale. For plenty more on espionage and the Second World War, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday with more from the world of history.